From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Refractive Surgery and Corneal Biomechanics, Part 1. We thought this was an artifact from our measurements. We couldn't understand how you could take tissue out of the center of the cornea and end up with thickening in the periphery. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. It's really not fair. We go out of our way to measure the optics of the cornea, the wavefront of the eye, and to plan out the best keratorefractive algorithm for our patient. But despite our best efforts, the cornea seems to have its own designs. Dan Reinstein tells us that the cornea is not a piece of plastic, inert and compliant to ablation, but rather that it reacts to treatment in a dynamic fashion. Dr. Reinstein is an expert in matters biomechanical of the cornea, and I'm delighted to welcome him as my guest today. My conversation with Dr. Reinstein was lengthy and will be presented in two parts. We'll hear part one of my conversation with Dr. Reinstein today, and we'll hear the conclusion in the next podcast. Why did early eczema treatments increase spherical aberration, Dan? I laugh because we spent the whole of the 90s, like practically a decade, uh, flattening the central cornea without considering uh, the increase in higher order aberrations. Um, and many of the surveys done at the end of the 90s showed that 40 to 50 percent of the myopic patients we treated uh, reported moderate to severe night vision disturbances, maybe not problems driving, but having an increase in disturbances. Um, the reason, the main reason why spherical aberration increased in these treatments is because of biomechanical changes within the cornea. Now, I say that now, um, it sounds very confidently, but 10 years ago, the, the general consensus was that the biomechanics had nothing to do with change in spherical aberration, that basically most of the spherical aberration increase was due to what was called the cosine effect at the time, meaning that the angle of incidence of the eczema beam um, as you go out from the center of the ablation towards the periphery on a curved surface called the cornea, the angle of incidence would increase, sorry, yeah, decrease. You're less perpendicular to the surface, and therefore the area divided by the energy in the beam you know, the, the, the fluence would go down. And so the fluence would go down as you go out 
um, towards the periphery, and so less tissue would be removed as you go out towards the periphery. So your intended carve in the cornea would be gradually degraded as you went out towards the periphery. And degradation of carving as you go out towards the periphery makes the cornea uh, effectively have more spherical aberration. Let, let me let me stop you there for for a second. So, um, if I'm picturing this this properly, it's it, as and uh, as as a cognate, it might be like this. It might be like the fact that the sun is putting out the this, the the same fluence aiming at the earth, but because it is incident more uh, uh, perpendicularly at the tropics, the tropics are warmer and the poles are colder similarly with the with the cornea even though the eczema might be putting out the uh, same fluence because it is incident more perpendicularly on the central cornea the central cornea is actually getting a greater ablation than the peripheral cornea on which the uh laser is uh incident less perpendicularly that's that's an excellent uh, analogy um and by the way I, you know as you're saying that because it's a great analogy. Um, uh, this is completely unrelated to what we're discussing, but very interesting how you notice that most eczema laser companies are put a lot of emphasis on, you know, the sophistication of the eye tracking uh, technology. Uh, the first culprit uh, was the LADAR vision, where, you know, the eye could be turned 30 degrees, and on the screen you saw this, a frozen image uh, where you know the eye was basically not moving, and the eczema laser would continue to fire on this eye sideways. And as we all know, the results of that laser were you know particularly bad because the ablations took a long time, and the eye was allowed to turn quite significantly uh, during active tracking. And so this is the reason why those results were so poor. And unfortunately, we still have the same marketing uh, 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 deception at the moment. You know, five, six D tracking, all of this. So we do. We tracking is a great thing for very small eye movements, um, but it is a very bad thing for anything but small eye movements. Because as soon as you start introducing these parallax errors, you start changing the the actual fluence and therefore the ablation amount at the surface of the cornea. And so the ideal tracking is one that switches off completely once the hot zone and the hot zone is in a very narrow hot zone. Huh, they, 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 that's, that's an interesting point. It totally makes sense. Mm. Anyway, back to the, to back to the topic. This, is, this was thought to be the reason why spherical aberration was going up and it was written in stone and I was like okay that's it and all the laser companies started talking about how they compensated for this um, and one way of compensating for it was to um, pre-inject spherical aberration into the profile so you would um, do your myopic ablation with your mineral in shape and then you would add in Z4 comma zero into or Z4 and Z6 or a combination of spherical aberrations to, if you like, pre-compensate for the induction of spherical aberration. And it, which kind of, it was a wild goose chase that we all set up on in the, in the early 2000s and we started, this was actually 
um, well, it, it led to fairly good compensation, but not great. And anyway, way back when the projection reflection error theory was, you know, uh, hip, we were showing with high frequency ultrasound scanning by measuring the thickness profile of the stroma independent of the epithelium before and after LASIK or PRK that the periphery of the stroma got thicker after a myopic procedure where you were only doing this removing tissue from the center of the cornea and obviously at first we thought this was an artifact from our measurements we couldn't understand how you could take tissue out of the center of the cornea and end up with thickening in the periphery right around the time that we published the first case uh, Cynthia Roberts um, was I think she must have reviewed our paper in the uh, 2000 issue of uh, July issue of the Journal of Infectious Surgery, because then she, in the same issue, wrote what has become the most famous biomechanics editorial uh, so far, called The Cornea is Not a Piece of Plastic, and she cited our finding that the stroma got thicker in the periphery, despite the fact that we weren't adding tissue, uh, just subtracting. The real credit goes to B.J. Dupes, actually, because he, uh, as, a, as a Ph.D. student, um, started doing experiments a few years before, uh, doing PTK onto the cornea. And they were finding that a central PTK caused thickening in the periphery. Uh, at the time, uh, Cynthia was his uh, supervisor. And in fact, really, it's B.J. Dupes' PhD that pre really is the first time that the PTK was shown to produce this peripheral thickening effect. Um, we then showed it um, in vivo. That was in... Um, you know, ex vivo uh, eyes. Uh, we showed it in vivo, and since then, we've worked uh, on the premise that about 80% of the induction of spherical aberration in myopic treatments, uh, PRK and LASIK, is due to thickening of the periphery, which, you know, if you imagine you're pulling up the uh, sides of a, of a blanket, um, you know, then the center stays the same curvature, but the rate of change of curvature gets greater, and so you increase the spherical aberration. Dan, do you, do you have any sense why this happens, what's physically going on that's, that's causing this? Well, BJ's work uh, really led to what our current, our current uh, you know, it, it, it's our model for explaining it. And as we know, the corneal lamellae, uh, stromal lamellae run pretty much from limbus to limbus, uh, 360 degrees around, and they're all interdigitated in planes um, that are at uh, right angles to each other and at a specific spacing, so that our cornea is transparent. The only place where collagen is transparent in the whole body. We know that, and then we know also that um, if you, well, now we understand that if you cut lamellae uh, towards the, you know, near the surface, that those lamellae are now no longer under tension, and the lamellae, as they come from the limbus towards the center to the cut end, will now, if you like, splay. And it's the splaying, or the lack of tension between these lamellar planes, that that allows um, the, 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 the fluid component of the cornea, the glycosaminoglycan matrix, to basically seep into 
these planes that are no longer under as much tension, and that causes a change in thickness. So if you like, it's like a, a sponge under tension, and then you relieve some of the tension on part of the sponge, it, it's able to take in more fluid. Huh. Now, why do larger treatment zones produce less spherical aberration? Well, uh, they don't, but they they don't per se, but they do because it they do based on how in what zone you're measuring the spherical aberration. So, um, and the reason why that's relevant in the human eye is partially because obviously uh, pupil size varies between individuals. So, people with very large pupils that don't react a lot, and you know, with the procyon pupilometer um, where you can measure pupil size in, you know, scotopic, low mesopic and high mesopic, you can, you can plot the, the, res- the pupillary response under low lighting conditions. Some patients have still quite large pupils, even under uh, scotopic or low mesopic um, conditions. And those people, therefore, need to have better optics within the zone of their pupil, the light entering the eye. Um, the second factor in where the size of the optical zone that requires low spherical aberration for good vision is the Strauss-Crawford effect. And we all know now that basically beyond, well certainly beyond the 6.5 millimeter zone and pretty much beyond the 6 millimeter zone, uh, the rays entering the eye are less important to the retina uh, because of the alignment of the photoreceptors. And so, again, uh, an angle of incidence thing, isn't it? Where the light is entering and, and hitting the photoreceptors at an angle, uh, the more peripheral rays, and so they don't have as much impact on, on, on the image. And so what, what many of us have tended to do in, in the scientific side of optical quality of refractive surgery is to measure all aberrations in a six millimeter zone because pretty much beyond that the spherical aberration isn't as important. If someone has a very large pupil it will be important. But for the average person and so therefore if it's the it's the, it's the ratio. If you treat in a six millimeter zone and measure in a six millimeter zone, you you with a monoline profile you're inducing X amount of spherical aberration, but if you treat in a 7, what you're technically doing is pushing the zone where the expansion occurs outward. And so more centrally within that 7 millimeter zone, there is less spherical aberration. So the degradation, if you like, occurs further out, and you're pushing the degradation to outside of the Stiles-Crawford uh, effect zone and outside of you know the pupillary uh, size in, in dim lighting. Dan, just just to to once more clarify because what you, you when the the information that you're giving is very very dense and I want to make sure uh, that the that the listeners are 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 following it. So uh, briefly, Stiles Crawford is as if all of the photoreceptors on the retina were like little telescope tubes all pointing towards the, the center of the, the cornea. And it's not... Of the pupil. Of the, of, of the pupil, excuse me. Uh, and it's not that um, that rays of light that are not coming in the center are not being sensed by the telescopes, but the telescopes are far more sensitive 
to rays of light that are coming in through the, the pupil center because that's where all the little tubes are pointed. Right. Carry on, please. Anyway, so um, so the old, and really we learned this early on, the larger the optical zone, the less patients complained of night vision problems. And that was simply because we were, you know, within a six millimeter zone, the level of spherical aberration was lower if you treat it in a seven and therefore pushed the peripheral zone expansion, the, the peripheral stromal expansion out than if you treat it in a six and the peripheral expansion started at six and went out. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, it's, it's that it, it, it's not that you're not getting peripheral expansion. It's not even that you're not getting spherical aberration, but you're moving right. the spherical aberration off to an area um, that is sort of less relevant to, right. to, the, to the patient's vision. That's now, it. Dan, what is wavefront optimized LASIK and how is it different from wavefront guided treatments? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, again, this is another area where, you know, we've had a lot of deceptive marketing uh, in the field uh, from companies and therefore a lot of very confusing debate. Um, and it's a shame because in the end, we're all trying to make patients' vision better. And the more doctors understand from the companies what it is that their lasers are doing, the better we can do for patients. The the deception came when one of the companies, uh, st- uh, well, the original wavefront guided treatments, the very original ones, there were two companies that came out with cysts, actually three, one in Europe that never went to the US, but um, where basically they would measure this, the, the wavefront with a wavefront sensor and then take that wavefront with its refraction and make up the ablation profile based on the wavefront refraction and the higher order aberrations in that wavefront. What was found in the original wavefront guided, meaning literally you take a wavefront from the patient and turn that into ablation profile, was that the results were no different from the standard, pretty much at all. And this was a bit of a disappointment because we were promised uh, 2010 by 2010 because of wavefront guided surgery. So given that there was no change, we had to scramble around and see what it was that was going on here. Now, had they looked at our previous work in the 90s on epithelial thickness and uh, compensation, they would have known that if you're going to take an extra three microns out of the peripheral stroma here, uh, that's going to get filled in and smoothed out by epithelium instantaneously and so that the outer curvature cornea is not going to experience any change in, 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 in higher order aberrations um, from the wavefront that was inserted into the profile. In fact, going back to the first thing you, you, we were talking about, the amount of spherical aberration being added by the myopic ablation itself was 10 20, 30 times higher than the amount of spherical aberration in the nascent eye before surgery. So even if you reversed the point, you know, one five microns of spherical aberration that's in the eye to start with, because you were inducing 0.6 microns of spherical aberration, 
if you, even if you were 100% effective in reducing spherical aberration according to pre-injection, you would only reduce the 0.6 by 0.15. You still have a ton of spherical aberration in your eye relative to pre-op. That's why the FDA labeling on wavefront-guided treatments never got, uh, they never got permission to market lowering of higher-order aberrations. Now, that is a fact that was hidden, buried, and the companies continued to push this concept that, you know, you're doing a very personalized treatment by measuring the patient's, you know, thumbprint of their higher-order aberrations, and you're going to individually improve their optics and give them better than their spectacle correction by, you know, correcting their higher-order aberrations. That was, was wrong. It was a lie. It wasn't true. And it was naive because a lot of the work that had already been done by optical scientists, Pablo Artal, you know, Susana Marcos, in the optical journal arena, had already shown that the brain is already pre-programmed to filter our nascent higher-order aberrations. And that, in fact, if you change someone's own wavefront, leaving them with the same RMS same root mean squared amount of high-order aberrations, but let's say rotate the aberrations, the patients, the, the, the subjects would see less well. In other words, we, are, we have a preprint uh, filter of our high-order aberrations. If you leave them alone, that preprint is still working. But if you rotate or change those, let's say reduce them, you might now leave unexposed filter and cause a degradation of the vision although you've improved the optics of the cornea. In yeah, fascinating sense. stuff. Fascinating. So there's a lot of mistakes being made in industry uh, and the marketing gloss over, you know, nail varnish uh, was, you know, hiding the ridges on those nails uh, very well and, and it was percolating all the way down to the public. Um, so to understand the difference between wavefront guide and wavefront optimized, you have to know this history. And then just, let's go, just, just, just go back to the bit where I said that in order to counterbalance the induction of spherical aberration, we had to start adding to our ablate, to our munralin profiles, uh, the antimatter to cancel out the matter. And so, you know, imagine the spherical aberration is acid and we were putting alkali into the profile to neutralize what we were going to induce. And Going back to what I said, the pre-compensation of spherical aberration uh, turns out that it wasn't very efficient because the more spherical aberration you inject into a profile, the more you shift the sphere of the final result in a hyperopic direction. This is, and so you would then have to add more depth to the ablation centrally to keep the sphere under control. This was evidenced by a lot of the off-label um, use of wavefront-guided treatments to correct night vision disturbances. And patients were, you know, maybe started off Plano with high spherical aberration, did a wavefront-guided treatment, patient would end up plus three because the internal nomograms didn't compensate for the way that sphere is connected to spherical aberration. The theoretical bench correlations are, are, are completely different from the corneal biomechanic 
and epithelial power shift uh, reactions after this kind of surgery. So anyhow, you know, so for 20,000 foot view, for years we started pre-compensating the profiles to prevent the induction of spherical aberration. And different companies called it different things. Um, some companies called it wavefront optimized in order to say we are optimizing the induction of spherical aberration. We're trying to minimize it. Although we, we were still very bad at uh, getting it to stay the same as pre-op. And one of the companies, unfortunately, because I don't know why, but for marketing reasons, obviously, they stuck to wavefront guided. And so, yes, maybe they were putting, you know, an imperceptible level of higher order aberration information into the profile. So they were guiding the shape of their ablation profile by the higher orders measured by their aberrometer. But they were also introducing a lot of pre-compensation into the profile to reduce the induction of spherical aberration. We'll end today's podcast here and pick up where we left off next time. Dan Reinstein is Medical Director of the London Vision Center in London, United Kingdom. His paper, Comparison of Ocular Biomechanical Response Parameters in Myopic and Hyperopic Eyes Using Dynamic Bidirectional Applanation Analysis, appears in the June 2014 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Reinstein or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.